I'm Jarrett Murphy, and this is 112BK. Coming up, Max Rose's victory last week means New York City no longer has a Republican in the House of Representatives. He beat the incumbent by flipping what was once a reliably red district. New York Times columnist Ginia Belafonte talks about the lessons other Dems can learn. He really, really, as I say in the column, managed to go macro and micro in a way that was really effective. And then criminal justice reform. Can the new Democratic majority in Albany deliver on their campaign promises? The executive director of Brooklyn Defender Services will discuss. We cannot just do it to say we did it. We cannot, we have to be very, very careful that whoever is working on these issues is very well informed about them because it's very easy to go wrong. As I said here last week, after the midterms, the one outcome that surprised me was Max Rose's defeat of incumbent Republican Dan Donovan in the 11th Congressional District. Recently, Genia Belafonte discussed that race in her New York Times column, Big City, titled, What Max Rose Can Teach Democrats About Beating Republicans. She noted that Rose, quote, failed to enrapture New Yorkers like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez did or like Beto O'Rourke did in Texas, and that here in Brooklyn, in the weeks leading up to the election, she saw 15 Beto t-shirts for every Max Rose t-shirt. She also commented on his, quote, lack of any telegenic appeal or especially inspired or passionate speaking style. And he only moved to Staten Island, the borough that dominates this district, in 2015. So how did he do it? On the phone, we want to welcome Genia Belafonte. Thanks for joining us on 112BK. Hey, thanks for having me. So were you surprised by Max Rose's win? I'm going to uh, toot my own horn here. Since I first heard about him last winter, a friend of mine from the neighborhood told me about him. She'd gone to a fundraiser. And I said, you know, I really, really strongly believe that this guy can win because of the changing demographics of the area, of the district, uh, which include a very gentrified northern tip of Staten Island and a very, very racially and ethnically diverse now Bay Ridge. And I just thought he had the right kind of message and position for that community. So you mentioned that his race seemed to capture people's imagination less than some of the others, like Beto O'Rourke's. Why do you think that was? It was really, really fascinating. I'd walk around Brooklyn and talk to people and friends and neighbors who I consider very politically engaged, and it was a race that was totally off their radar, and these are people who were going, you know, to fundraisers for Stacey Abrams and were really, really connected to the big high-profile races around. Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor in, in Georgia. Yeah, right, and, um, and Beto O'Rourke, of course, and I did you know, I felt sort of, you know, overlooking what you've got in your backyard. You know, they they just really probably didn't, you know, a lot of Brooklynites in Brownstone, Brooklyn, don't venture out to Staten Island. They don't know it. I think it's foreign territory. They assume that it's always will swing GOP. So they really weren't paying attention, and uh, except for high schoolers. I know a lot of teenagers who are out there canvassing for him. But he still won. So what lessons does this race teach Democrats about how they can beat Republicans? Well, it's funny because he was really, you know, he was covered as a centrist and maligned some by progressives for playing it too down the middle of the road. But I think his message was essentially very progressive. Working people are having a hard time. He had a strong economic component to his message. And I think that he managed to sort of create a, a, a message that was substantively progressive, but he marketed himself in a way that could play 
to swing voters on Staten Island, and it totally, totally worked. He, you know, he was a veteran uh, in Afghanistan, which really, really helped him, I think. And he was young, which helped him with young voters, obviously. And he really, really, as I say in the column, managed to go macro and micro in a way that was really effective. Because he talked about the larger economic issues. He talked about the way the working class and middle class were getting cut out of the prosperity that was so much a characteristic of life in New York and other major cities. But he also really, really hit the local issues hard. And, of course, one of the biggest problems on Staten Island is the opiate crisis. And he really, really relentlessly hit home the fact that Dan Donovan, his Republican opponent and former district attorney, had taken money from Purdue Pharma, the company that created and very aggressively marketed OxyContin when they knew kind of how uh, insidious it was. And if you drove around Staten Island before the election, you just saw posters really just with that tagline, like Dan Donovan took, you know, however many thousand dollars from Purdue. And I think that was very effective. He also seemed to tap into the very common uh, thread in Staten Island of a feeling of being isolated, kind of forgotten by the city. I mean, one of his first ads targeted Mayor de Blasio, member of his own party. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I think that was also effective in casting him as not you know, a, uh, you know, not too far to the left. You know, de Blasio, there's no no love for de Blasio on Staten Island, so he wanted to separate himself from de Blasio, and uh, and that worked to his, certainly redounded to his benefit as well. You mentioned in your article, uh, I'm going to quote here, what this suggests is that the lack of affordable housing, paradoxically, has the potential to produce ideological reconfigurations at the local level that could serve as a counterpoint to aggressive gerrymandering. Right. Tell, tell us what you meant by there. Elaborate on that. Well, you know, we, we, we tend to look at shifts in housing demographics in terms of gentrification, right? We see the coffee bar, we see the wine bar. We're like, that neighborhood is gentrified and is getting a new kind of person. We tend to look less at where housing patterns shift and where there are an obvious signifiers. So what I found in talking to people, that there are all kinds of, you know, young families, older people, people of all sorts, priced out of places like Brooklyn, and really priced out of even places in Brooklyn that you might think would be the next frontier. I met someone who couldn't buy a house in East New York, certainly nowhere in Brooklyn, and had gone to look in East New York. That was unaffordable. And she went to a community in Staten Island, Central Staten Island, which was where Max Rose really had to pick up some votes, called New Dorp. And, uh, you know, it's certainly not a neighborhood anybody would say was gentrified, but it remains affordable. It's white working class. And people can buy homes. You know, people who want to purchase homes can buy them there. You don't need to make a ton of money. And that's going to bring young, more left-leaning people into the community. And as she said, said to me, you know, she was really surprised. You know, this woman who'd been there for a couple of years, she was a midwife. She was really surprised how many Max Rose signs there were up in the neighborhood, which... You know, a friend of mine who grew up in central Staten Island said, you know, five, ten years ago was totally, totally inconceivable. So, you know, there was a Democratic congressman from this district for a brief time just a few years ago and then replaced by Michael Graham and then Don Donovan. So I wonder, based on that idea that gentrification has reshaped the district, gentrification keeps moving in waves. Right. And, and we might see further changes in this district. Do you think that the gains we've seen here are fragile or are they going to stick around for a while? 
Well, he won, you know, he won by a considerable margin. It wasn't one or two points. And, and I, I don't see that the developments in Staten Island and Bay Ridge turning around. I mean, I suppose if there's a big housing crisis and people who have, you know, been renting for years and can finally buy in, you know, might buy in in a more centrally located place, Clinton Hill or Park Slope or something like that, you know, that that would turn things around. But, you know, even with a downturn, let's say, of 5-10%, the housing in New York is just so astronomically priced that it's going to be out of reach for teachers, for people who are really in the middle of the income distribution. Jeannie Belafonte, columnist for The New York Times, thank you so much for that very interesting lens on election 2018. Thank you. Bye-bye. A week after Election Day, the attention in New York has shifted from the tally to the to-do list. Now that Democrats control all the levers of power in the state, can they deliver on all their promises? A lot of those promises concern criminal justice system reform, from cops to courts to the correction system. These long-sought changes have to be approved in Albany, but will profoundly affect life here in the city, especially the effort to close Rikers Island. Here to talk about how criminal justice reform looks from the defense table in Brooklyn's criminal courtrooms is Lisa Schreibersdorf, executive director of Brooklyn Defender Services. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks for being on. For those who aren't familiar with it, what is Brooklyn Defender Services? So Brooklyn Defender Services is a public defender office that's uniquely located in Brooklyn. We represent something like 30,000 people every single year. Many of them are charged with uh, crimes like misdemeanors and more serious cases like felonies. We, ha- we represent people that are at risk of having their children taken from them by ACS. We also represent people in immigration court who are facing deportation proceedings. People that come into our office in those various ways also get access to a wealth of services. There are housing attorneys, education attorneys, and social workers, and um, we try to help residents of Brooklyn as much as we can. We also have a community office, which I'm pretty excited about, at 566 Livonia. And people can walk in and get assistance with almost any legal problem. So I welcome anybody who's watching this if they think they need some legal help to come in. And if ACS may be questioning you, you can get advice from us about how to best handle that. So Brooklyn Defender Services and its counterparts elsewhere in the city, Bronx Defenders, Legal Aid, this week you guys joined together and sent a letter to the governor, Mm -hmm. to the incoming majority leader of the state senate, the speaker, uh, Carl Heasty. What did that say? So we've been asking for criminal justice reform for quite a while, of course, and often the Senate will stop very important reforms, even when the Assembly, which was a Democrat at the time, and the governor might be in favor of the reform. For example, last year, there was a big push to do bail reform, and the governor put it in the budget, and there was a lot of discussion about it, but it it was thwarted by the Republicans' Senate. Um, So we're very excited that the newly Democrat Senate, Democratic Senate, can take up these reforms that have been stalled. So the letter spelled out the the urgent need to look at criminal justice as one of the very first things that the Senate We're talking the big three, for lack of a better term, bail reform, speedy trial, and discovery. Well, so, yes. And I think if you think of those as pretrial justice reform, that's the best way to look at it. Because bail reform is a way to make sure that people who are accused of a crime but not convicted or not sitting in jail, um, waiting for their day in court. 
um, discovery is for a lot. Just people yes. don't realize like bail is there to get people to show up for trial. It's not they haven't been found yeah. guilty of anything, right? Exactly. Um, but there are people in jail sometimes for a long time on relatively low bails for relatively minor crimes. Right? That's the that's the heart of the problem. Well, bail is intended to so that you can post the bail. And that will encourage you. you. Wouldn't want to lose your mother's house or something like that. So you would come to court. And now, instead of that, they set bail that nobody can post. So they end up staying in jail because they can't afford it. So the end of wealth-based detention is the way we think about bail reform. Another issue that's very important is what is happening while your case is pending. And right now in New York, we have one of the most regressive, it's called discovery, laws in the country. Discovery is the process by which lawyers share information leading up to the trial. And the DA has all of the materials that we would need to basically understand and prepare for our case, but there's no law requiring them to turn that over to us. Unlike, by the way, if you had a, mo a lawsuit for money in the civil courts, that information is rarely shared with both sides. We have been advocating for change, and we believe that is one of the most essential changes that have to happen very quickly as soon as Albany gets back in session in January. And the speed of trials is a big part of this, too. This came up, obviously, in the tragic Khalif Browder case, constant uh, adjournments. These trials linger for years. Uh, what's the solution to that one? Well, it's a little more complicated. And I think, if I just have to be honest, if we did bail reform, where most people are not in jail, and we did discovery reform, Khalif Browder is somebody who would have benefited from both of those reforms. There's a likelihood that he might have been out under some of the proposals and not sitting in jail, and that his lawyer would have had that information that would have shown that he wasn't guilty and he could have had his day in court sooner or been at least released. I think all three of those issues have to be seen as interrelated and whatever reforms happen have to be really looked at as a, as a threesome. Um, there are a lot of things they can do for speedy trial that would improve the situation quite a bit. And uh, right now we have a rule that says, as long as the DA is basically saying they're ready for trial, then that's pretty much stops the clock. And I think some more accountability for what it really means to be ready for trial could be very important. Uh, some people believe a very strict timeline in the court system would be a better solution. We cannot have something like that without the discovery. We can't have, we, we need police reports, witness statements. We need the scientific evidence. We need right, to be able to review Right, because if you're rushing that. the trial along, but the discovery hasn't occurred, you're just right. creating a new problem. And we should just note, Khalif Browder was the young man who was held on Rikers for more than right. two years for allegedly stealing a backpack, eventually released, killed himself yeah, um, as a result of the trauma that he, very, he very suffered sad. there. So what do you think are the prospects for reform? And everyone's so excited about this democratic control but obviously, um, that's been present in the governor's office and in the assembly for many, many years. Now they have it in the Senate. Are you feeling optimistic, guardedly optimistic? I'm very optimistic. I believe very strongly. The governor spoke at Global Citizen a few weeks ago saying that he would prioritize bail reform. He did put it in his budget last year. We really hope that he takes up one of the you know very good proposals that have been on the table in the budget and opens the door for this conversation immediately. There was a discovery proposal in his budget last year as well. We think that's the best way to start a really good conversation early on because the budget is the first thing that happens in Albany. It gets submitted in, in January and it, until March, there's time for everybody to talk about the issues. There's a good time to think about how to you know get everybody together in agreement upon the best way to to do these reforms. But one of the things I want to say that, that is very, very important is that we do, do not do 
form over substance. These issues are very intricate. They're very interrelated. We have had the opportunity to spend a lot of time in Albany talking about these issues. We cannot just do it to say we did it. We cannot, we have to be very, very careful that whoever is working on these issues is very well informed about them because it's very easy to go wrong. For example, in California, they wanted to pass bail reform and they, you know, they all got together and passed a, a statute that's very bad. And if something like that How happened, so? Like what, what are well, the dangers? For example, in the, in the statutes that have been recommended so far in New York State, if there's a standard by which the judge may be able to hold somebody, that person's entitled to a hearing in court. They're entitled to have their lawyer flesh out whether there is really a reason to hold that person for whatever reason is spelled out. In California, this new statute lets the judge hold people without a hearing. So the judge can say, you know, I feel like you might be dangerous. It also brings in the use of risk assessment instruments, which are extremely unreliable, and we really oppose very strongly using computers to come up with standards by which judges make these decisions, because the, the databases which are used for those risk assessments are always racially biased. And so we don't want to encourage more using, usage of such databases or standards that allow judges to have a broad range of discretion without some accountability or legal requirements about how to hold people. So there are issues that we hope New York's already ahead of California in terms of talking about these issues, and we want them to stay that way. So we, we want them to take the time they need to do this and do it right. We're talking about, as you said, pretrial justice issues. But obviously, the criminal justice world is much broader than that. And in earlier years, a lot of the focus was on the policing aspect, the thing that gets people into the courtroom in the first place. And there's been a lot of coverage of the aftermath of Stop and Frisk, a documentary called Crime and Punishment, talking about the existence of quotas. When it comes to police reform, is there more the city should be doing there before people even get to talking about bail? I think there's a lot that can be done with police reform. Unfortunately, I don't think that can come out of Albany for the most part. I think that has to be policies by the, you know, locally, mm -hmm. by the mayor and by the police chief. There are ways in which statutes in Albany can curb some of the abuses, some of the harshest abuses. For example, legalization of marijuana would be a big, mm -hmm. would make a really big impact on interactions that individuals have with the police that sometimes can go wrong or can create a huge amount of really extenuating circumstances that can stop people from getting jobs, getting student loans and other kinds of things. So I think Albany should really focus mostly on decriminalizing and I think in the long run also work on, you know, creating a lot of alternatives. I, right here in Brooklyn, for example, our DA's office has always been really supportive of alternative to incarceration, meaning let's say you have a drug problem or a mental health problem, that instead of you doing a jail sentence or a prison sentence, you might get this treatment. And if you do well, that your case can be resolved in a way that would not bar you from employment or other opportunities. There are ways that the Albany you know, process can bring that into the legislation so that can be done more readily, that other jurisdictions can do it, even if their DA's office may not be as excited about those prospects. The judges can do it without DA consent. Those are the kinds of, I think, processes that can make a really big difference for people. Because if you get arrested and you have a drug problem, getting drug treatment and then getting a second chance is much more important and actually much more effectual than imprisoning people. So yes, I think, and, and I do think then police have a different role, right? 
they understand their role differently, and I think that's important, too. I want to ask, but you mentioned the local DAs. Obviously, some of that alternative sentencing stuff and diversions came under Charles Hines and under the two subsequent mm-hmm. DAs, the late Ken Thompson and the current Eric Gonzalez. There have been efforts to change policing and arresting and prosecution for things like marijuana possession and mm-hmm. low-level offenses. That's what the press releases have said, um, and we've obviously heard changes, too, from NYPD and, and the mayor's office. In terms of the people that your office represents, are we seeing those changes trickle down? Is it different in, in the courtrooms today because of what Thompson and Gonzalez and de Blasio have done? I would say it's different because of what Gonzalez has done, just to be honest. That like a lot last, different or like I a little different? I see a noticeable difference since he was elected in terms of their bail requests and the fact that they aren't asking for bail. They are very cooperative with Raise the Age just coming in. They are very cooperative with taking young people and giving them the opportunity to go to family court where their records will be sealed. They are not prosecuting marijuana cases. He's very serious about getting rid of old marijuana convictions. I I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. I'm not saying all the problems have been solved, and I actually don't think those problems should be placed in the hands of prosecutors to solve. Some of these can be You know, I think prosecutors can make a difference in some of these issues, but most of these issues have to be legislatively fixed. For example, we have something in New York called youthful offender treatment, where if somebody is 18 years old, for example, right now it's 16, 17, and 18, that their record would be sealed. The judge can decide to seal their record and give them, there are a lot more options, for example, probation or treatment programs, which would stop that person from, let's say, getting deported or also losing their housing. You know, their record would not be there for an employer to see or even a a school if they want to go to college. That only goes up to age of 19. And right now, with everything we know about adolescent brain development, that legal status should be extended up to the age of 25th birthday, especially for people on their first arrest. That isn't something the prosecutor, even if they wanted to, that they could do. That's a legal issue that has to be changed by legislation. So I think that's really important. And I think another thing that's really important is giving judges back a little more control over sentencing by reducing what we call mandatory minimum sentences or giving the judge an opportunity to actually depart from those mandatory minimums when they find circumstances warrant it. You know, if somebody wasn't really the main mover in a, a particular incident, you know, we have a kid right now, he's a student, he's an A student, he's on sports teams, got himself caught up in a bad situation, the judge should be able to make the decision that that person deserves. Have some discretion. Right, exactly. When you think about the prospects for criminal justice reform, you know, there's a, a broad consensus now that things need to change. And I think that's partly because of the fact that we've enjoyed this relatively long period of falling crime in the city. And I'm wondering, how robust do you feel the support for criminal justice reform is? Is there a sense of urgency that should crime tick up, which in some places it, it, it might, that the case for reform or at least the kind of groundswell will be undermined by that? Is there any worry about that? Or um, is this a robust feeling that something has to change? No, I think, I think there's a very robust, there's a real movement. And I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that anything we have done previously that's been harsh and unfair has reduced crime. Despite what anybody might have said, if anything, there's more evidence that somebody doing a very short stay in jail, even 24 hours, is more likely to create trauma, which trauma is one of the biggest causes of future criminality and un- inability to sort of integrate back into, com- into the community. So the, mo- the more that we don't incarcerate people, especially young people, the better off we will be in terms of preventing future crime. 
And also the more that we work with people when they have issues that they need to address. And so I, I mentioned about the prosecutor being more willing to do that. But just so you understand, my office has a lot of resources for people. So for example, if we have somebody who has a mental health issue, they get a specialized attorney who will work with them, who understands a lot of the dynamic about mental illness and a specialized social worker. And with that, we may be able to present to the prosecutor and the judge an alternative that would really work using Brooklyn resources, right? This particular treatment program has accepted this person. That This is a very well-suited person for this particular kind of alternative. So I think the more that you use those, if somebody has a mental illness which is untreated or a drug addiction, they the main thing that will help them not commit a further crime is to get help. That is clear. So I'm, we're not worried about reforms that need to happen. So that will be a big story in 2019. Lisa yes. Schreibersdorf of Brooklyn Defender Services, thank you so much for talking us thank through you. those issues. Thank you. Thanks so much. The idea that people should be equally represented in Congress shouldn't be controversial, and for the most part, it's not. What is controversial is how and why district lines are drawn. This leads us to something fun and exciting. Just kidding. It's gerrymandering, and that's today's issue on the table. The word gerrymandering was first used in the Boston Gazette in 1812, when a political cartoon showed a redrawn district in the shape of a dragon. The man responsible for this twisted district, drawn up to reflect ships in population, and incidentally, the name of my band in high school, was Elbridge Gerry, hence gerrymandering. By law, congressional districts must be drawn to contain roughly equal populations. So why does it matter that they look unnatural or even somewhat ridiculous, like Chicago's 4th or Texas's 25th, the fajita district, as it was once known, because it looked like the tangly, misshapen strip of meat you toss into a tortilla? Well, in fact, states don't just draw districts to make them equal in population. The political party in power draws them to capture certain population characteristics that will improve their chances of electoral victory like what happened in Pennsylvania in 2012, where Democratic candidates for Congress received a total of 83,000 more votes than Republican candidates, but because of earlier redistricting, Republicans won 13 out of 18 seats. This is why state legislature elections matter so much in census years. Those are the years when districts are redrawn, based on that very census data. Whoever wins the election gets to redraw the districts. And guess what, Brooklyn? 2020 is the next census year. A lot of people blame poor Elbridge Gerry and his gerrymandering for our problems of representation, but really they run deeper. Keep in mind that Democratic voters tend to concentrate in urban areas, giving a state like Ohio more Republican-leaning rural districts, even though the overall population is basically an even split. Gerrymandering will always be an easy concept to criticize because the visual results are so striking and the numbers seem so unfair. But... Despite these disadvantages, Democrats just took back control of the House, making their gains all the more impressive. They also won back some governorships, and if trends continue, they'll be in the catbird seat come redistricting time. To the victor goes the spoils. Nevertheless, recent surveys show that most Americans prefer a nonpartisan redistricting process. How we'll get there is an open question. Computers, algorithms, outsourcing? Or just hand it over to me. I'm fair-minded. We'll call it gerrymandering. That's the show for today. Tomorrow, Ashley will be back to talk about staying in your lane, doctors and guns. Hope you can join us.
112BK is produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It's recorded by Eric Hagasag, Clinton Filson Jr., and Antonio M. Rosario. And it's edited by Mira Al-Rahim. It's executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Aziz Aisham, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>